Welcome to the Business, Wealth and Mindset Podcast. Your space for real motivational interviews and cutting-edge business content to inspire your positive mental attitude. And now, your host, Alex Sopala. Hi and welcome to part one of two of my incredible interview with the legend that is Mr. Ray McLennan, who is a world record holder, author and public speaker. Uh, In this uh, part one, he talks his early days uh, growing up in Scotland, his career in the army, uh, the influence of his parents as well as his many other experiences in business and uh, growing up uh, in uh, in Scotland. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And uh, without further ado, here is myself with Mr. Ray McLennan. Uh, thank you very much, Ray, for, for coming on to, to speak to us. I just, I just remember for you, I was actually thinking, you know, what, what is the best thing to, to ask you? Because there's just uh, so much knowledge there for you. Uh, I, I think I can probably spend days and days and, and capture so much wisdom from you. So I was well, thinking, as long as it's any good. Yeah, it is very, very good. I was talking to someone to, um, yesterday saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a Ray on the podcast, and uh, he's got uh, so many stories. Some of them uh, sound like uh, stories from like a movie or fiction, but they're actually real stories. So I thought probably um, the, the best thing to begin with is to sort of um, capture your journey, sort of from uh, from the beginning. It's like uh, you know, telling us your your story in chronological order. Okay. From the early days, you know, the siblings growing up, your memories, and then your journey to, to where you are. So if you think of it like, uh, you know, 50 years, 100 years down the line, like the great, 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 great grandchildren are listening to this and they want to know, you know, who was our <laughs> great, great, grand. Oh, right. Okay. Well, that's um, yeah. quite a challenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, if you if you take us through there, and then we can uh, pick bits in, in within of uh, the lessons, the successes, and everything else within. Uh, so if you if you take us there from the beginning and your childhood and memories and school and growing up and career and so on. Yeah. Sure. Um, okay. I, well, I suppose. Um, I mean, all my family are, are entrepreneurs, and my father was probably one but in those days it was he was known as a businessman and mm. you know as a businessman he did a number of things so um when i was born he actually had ice cream vans mm. was on, a, on an estate in edinburgh a council estate in edinburgh and he drove around in ice cream vans basically selling ice cream mm. and uh it, it had one then he had two then he had three and he said to me that he credits his success with um, one of the summers was very long and, and it was a long, hot summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people, older people listening to this, 1976 was a long, hot summer, right? This yeah. was before then. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said he was out early in the morning selling ice cream way up until after dark. I mean, he didn't stop when, when it got dark. He just yeah. kept going. And he said that um, 
So in those days, everybody paid with small coins. Well, there wasn't a lot of paper money around, you know. Mm-hmm. And he would come home and he'd tip the money into the bath. And uh, his his mother, my grandmother, who lived with with him, thought that he'd robbed a bank. She thought he was actually a criminal. <laughs> he could be making this amount of money. <laughs> so anyway, um, we we then moved out of there to a different different part of the the city, and he. Um, bought a cafe so it was a, a corner corner sh- uh, like a corner shop there was a corner cafe in a, a sort of better part of town and the cafe did did really well and again they, they worked you know from morning till night they finished early on a saturday and they had the sunday off so the saturday the the, the instead of closing at sort of nine or ten o'clock at night i think it closed at six o'clock at night and him and my mother would go out and um, I would stay at home with my two older brothers and older sister. Mm-hmm. They were much older than me, so they weren't they weren't playmates or anything like that. Yeah. But um, I did see them doing things like paper rounds and and working. And and when I sat in the cafe, um, I would sit in the corner and I'd, and and you know they would effectively be um, doing doing business, selling teas and coffees and bottles of coke. And one of my very early memories, and it's one of the reasons why I don't like wearing branded um, clothing or anything branded, mm. uh, is there was a delivery of Coca-Cola to our cafe. And the, the, the man, the, the representative of the Coca-Cola company saw me sitting in the corner and he gave me a T-shirt and it was red and it had in white writing right across the front, Coca-Cola. Okay, mm-hmm. And I thought it was fabulous, this red T-shirt. So, of course, I pulled it on. And I was running around proudly because nobody wore any branded stuff in, in those days, you know. Mm. So uh, all these bottles of Coke arrived, and I was proudly showing this T-shirt. And I remember my dad said to me, he said, uh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, look at this lovely T-shirt. And he goes, where did you get that from? I said, the Coca-Cola man, he gave it to me for free. It's a free T-shirt. He mm. said, you're running around with their advert on. He said, why would you do that for a T-shirt? What's wrong with you? And I said, well, but it's Coca-Cola. And he went, but you're advertising their product for nothing. Yeah. They haven't paid you. They said, oh, but I've got a free T-shirt. I said, he said, it doesn't matter. Yeah. He said, look, unless they pay you to wear it, get it off. So I, uh, I took the T-shirt off. <laughs> I think yeah. I, ended, I ended up swapping it or selling it with one of my friends or something. Yeah. But later yeah. on in life, I remember people used to get those, you know, those Ralph Lauren shirts, polo yeah. with, the, with the, the horse thing on it. Yeah. yeah. When I got one when I was about 17 or 18, I picked out the logo. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was left with a hole, and I thought, "Oh my God, I've done the wrong thing here." <laughs> so those those lessons stayed with you from from your dad. Well, I, 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 I then in the cellar, though, uh, in the cafe. So there was a cellar, and you go down into the cellar, and it's where he kept all the, you know, all the. I mean, it was a real dingy cellar. There was a yeah. toilet in there, and cobwebs everywhere, and one single light bulb hanging. You know, it was yeah. like coming out of a horror movie, uh, and a big wooden bench. And a sort of caged area, and the caged area had a padlock on it, and that's where he kept things, you know, that were in case he got broken into. It's where they kept yeah. cigarettes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the bench was a long wooden sort of bench with a with a sort of bar stool at it, mm-hmm. and he used to sit there and count the money. And then occasionally he'd ask me to help him count the money. So again, I remember I'm, I must have been about four or five, but I remember counting all the money, putting it into piles sorting out all the notes into separate notes because in Scotland we have lots of different notes okay mm. pound notes five pound notes they could be English they could be Scottish yeah. and in Scotland there are three different banks that issue notes 
what he asked me to do was to sort them all into different piles. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's a bit strange. Why would you want to do that? But he told me that if you sort them into piles, when you take them to the bank, you pay less bank charges. Oh, the bank sort them all, they will charge you more. So anyway, and yeah, he just he just uh, helped me in that sort of area with you know by osmosis, as it were. Mm. And then um, again, where you lived, where you went to school, where you worked, and again was all very close. There was no commuting or anything like this. I mean, we. Uh, our, our house, our flat, it's in a tenemented area of Edinburgh, tenement buildings or sort of flats yeah. that were built in the 1870s, 1880s, big, big apartments mm. um, with a back garden where you could hang your washing out and things like that and, and not many cars parked in the street. Sounds like I'm talking about 100 years ago, but it wasn't that yeah. <laughs> So we, I would walk to school. I would walk to where my, my parents uh, worked in the cafe. I also went swimming. There's a lot of swimming in those days, and there was a swimming bath around the corner, so I walked there. All my friends lived in the same area. We played football in the same area. And I went to the local church where um, we had Boy Scouts, mm-hmm. Cub Scouts. Yeah. And my brother, my older brother, had had won an award. It's a small silver cup. And it was for a, a, a competition called Bob a Job. Okay. <laughs> Bob a Job. Now, a Bob in way, I mean, the, the name carried on, but way back, a bob was a shilling, five pence. Ah, mm-hmm. so if, if you did a job, so if you went to, so the idea is in, in those days is, is you, you were a Cub Scout, you went to someone's house, you knocked on the door and you said, it's Bob a job week. Everybody knew it was Bob a job week. Uh-huh. Uh, job do you want me to do? And they'd say, well, I want you to clear out the garage for me or cut the grass or wash my car or uh, I see. run this errand for me. Mm-hmm. And they would give you money and it could be, you know, it, it didn't have to be, a shilling it could be five shillings or a pound yeah. and you would give them a yellow sticker that they would sort of lick and stick on the window <laughs> so that any other cub scout knew that they, they shouldn't go to that house because it'd been done already been okay? done all right but um i, I was what and in my because uh, we all lived in the same area so <laughs> most of the houses had these yellow stickers yeah. on <laughs> and uh, i just remember thinking all right i thought well if they've had a job done i mean What's in the rules that says you, you're, you're not allowed to go to that house again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can go to that house again. So, of course, <laughs> I would go to the house and someone would say, well, I've already had somebody here um, doing it. And I said, yeah, but, you, you know, now you know how it works. Do you mm-hmm. want to, do you need anything else done? Yeah. And go, um, yeah, okay then. All right. Yeah, come okay. in. Then. <laughs> so it must have been the first or second house I went to it and I got, I got a thumbs up, which kind of gave me the, the impetus to keep going. Mm. So the competition ended. I, I was the winner. I collected the most money. Wow. <laughs> it was over the course of a week. Yeah. So I'd collected the most money. And now I had the cup and I had my name on it below my brother's name. Yeah. <laughs> so won it and then I won it. And then um, I sort of forgot about it till the next year. And then it, Boba Job Week came around the next year. Because I hadn't told anybody what I'd done. I hadn't said, oh, by the way. I went know, back to the. Yeah. yeah to not go to other people's houses. Yeah. Um, and uh, I thought, well, I'll just do the same thing again. Okay, mm-hmm. So I did, and I won it again. So I now had my name on the cup two years. And then the, the scout leader, the cub leader said, if you win it next year, you'll have it three times. You get to keep the cup. Oh, wow. Thought, Whoa. 
Oh, okay. Challenge, yeah. So, yeah, so um, so the next year I did it again and I won it again. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was all, you know, errands and messages and things like that. Um, then uh, my father, by this time, had sold the cafe and, and he, you know, our, our family wealth increased as as he worked harder, as it were. Mm. He, he always used to say, you know, oh, you have to work hard. And, you, you know, if you, he was very much, if you want a job done, do it yourself and all this kind of kind. It was very old school in that way. Yeah. So, so whilst he was teaching me some lessons, he was also, uh, he didn't know it and I didn't know it, but he was teaching me some other lessons, yeah. uh, which which came to be detrimental later on in life. And by that, I mean... You know, um, you can't he'd say things. You can't get the staff. You know, don't trust mm. anybody to look after the money. If you want yeah. a job done, do it yourself. You've got to work hard. You know, it was all that sort of. Yeah. Uh, so there was nothing about um, leveraging or outsourcing. Mm. So, so whilst he showed me a way, uh, one way, he never really left me a, a path, as it were. He never really left me any yeah. kind of roadmap. He didn't say. He never sat down with me and said, "Oh, you do this is what you do, or or you do this, or you do this." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just told to, you know, go out, go out, and if you want money, go and do a paper round. And work, yeah, and work for somebody, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that would have been the early part of life. Early part. Yeah. Then um, our family fortunes, as it were, uh, took an upturn. Um, my father now had uh, a pub. He had wow. a pub. And I used to clean the toilets in the pub yeah. and. I just sort all the bottles out, you know, in a pub, you would be serving people, opening bottles of Coke, opening bottles of this and that, the next thing, and throw them all into this tub. And then that tub had to be taken away and sorted out into crates. Mm-hmm. So that when the Coca-Cola men or, or the Schweppes men came to take the bottles away, it had to be their bottles that were in their crate. Yeah. So you had to do that. So that was my job. <laughs> so that was my job along with cleaning the toilets and sweeping the floor yeah. and again, uh, the pub was divided into two parts so the front part was where all the men went and the back part was where all the women went it was, it was a it was a the pub and the lounge yeah <laughs> and when i cleaned up you'd I'd quite often find money on the floor you know oh, wow so my father knew this, so he never paid me to do the job. Yeah. <laughs> he never said, well done, here's your, here's some pocket money or anything like that. He said, no, no, you probably get enough money from picking up on the floor. But you don't yeah. need to pay you. So I ended up doing a lot of work there and getting nothing, <laughs> not getting paid for it. You know? Yeah. Bloody nightmare. Anyway, <laughs> so anyway. Mm. So our family fortunes took a turn for the better when one of my father's um, customers mm won the the football pools. Now, the football pools is a bit like the lottery, the national lottery. So this was a regular customer, and he won the lottery, the football pools. Mm. Um, It it was – I don't know how much it was. I remember his name, but I I don't know how much it was. Um, His name was Dennis, and he wanted to buy the pub because he won the pools – I'll buy my local pub type thing, you know, because it was doing very well. It was quite successful. Um, And it it seems really strange to say this, but in those days it was very busy at lunchtime with a lot of taxi drivers who would come in and have three or four pints of beer (laughs) (laughs) and then go back to work. In fact, I remember actually finding, um, I might have it here somewhere, but I found uh, uh, an advert that they, they brought out at the time and it was 
about you know drinking and driving and being careful. Mm-hmm. And it was a picture of um, what looks, you know, a gear stick on a car that yeah. has one, two, three, yes. four, you know, for, for where you shift the gear, right? Yeah. Manual, manual stick. It was a picture of that. And it said, if you're going to drive, don't have five. Oh. In, other words, in other words, four pints was the maximum. Yeah, my- <laughs> <laughs> These taxi drivers would go, well, I can, I can only have four pints before four I go back pints. to work. <laughs> drive, don't have five. Uh, and I, but, you know, I'm sure if you Google it, you'll find uh, under images, you will find, you'll you'll find, find it. it. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, it was very busy at lunchtime. It was a busy pub. It was, um, you know, my father made a lot of money. Hmm. As a result, we did quite well. Um, you know, we moved to better, better houses, better accommodation. But then one of my dads, like I say, won the football pools, the equivalent of the, the lottery. And he wanted to buy the pub. And I think from memory, now my father's dead now. He died about 14, 15 years ago. But yeah. but before he died, we had lots of conversations about things like, like this. Hmm. And I think the pub was worth something like £60,000, something yeah. like that. Okay, mm-hmm. which then was a lot of money. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, to put that into context, one of the one of the tenement flats, one of the apartments in this area of Edinburgh where I lived, is called Marchmont. And if you want to buy a flat there now today, mm-hmm. it's about anything from three hundred and fifty to to six hundred thousand, depending on how big it is. Some of them are yeah. double flats, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. three hundred fifty to five hundred thousand for a flat. Yeah. When my father sold the pub, you could buy one of those flats for four thousand. Oh wow! Okay. So that, that's the difference in inflation. Yeah, and uh, the, the, so the pub was worth sixty thousand, which just shows you it was a lot of money. That's a lot of money. But pubs were were uh, valued not yeah. on the bricks and mortar. Pubs were valued on the turnover. Yeah. So if your pub today, if you have a pub that does a million pounds, then the valuation is a million pounds, unless it's a spectacular building. Yeah, that's the general rule of thumb. Um, so I remember my father said to me that it was sixty thousand pounds. He didn't want to sell it, okay? but because Dennis had won won the pools and had a what seemingly must have been a, a lot of money, right? I don't know what the pools were, but uh, it would have been in those days. So if you think about it, you buy a flat for four thousand. I think he won the equivalent, something like two hundred and fifty. He won two hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Probably yeah. the equivalent of about two or three million now. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when you won the pools in those days, you were set up for life. I can imagine. Yeah, there was a, they had famous football pools winners, and there was one um, Viv, I think her name was, who won the pools in the nineteen sixties. You know, they they used to parade people out that won the football pools, mm. in the same way they do with lottery winners now. You know, they get a, they get a piece on the television, they open a bottle yeah. of champagne, and everyone goes, "Well, hey," you know, and uh, this woman, Viv, can't remember her second name, but she was very famous because they said to her, um, you've won the football pools, what are you going to do now? And she said, I'm going to spend, spend, spend. And- <laughs> spend, spend, spend. That was her mantra. Yeah, yeah. I think she did, and I think she ended up bankrupt or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the things they never tell you about the pools or the lottery is they show the winner, and they use, it's usually a 30-second slot, right? Mm-hmm. And they're holding up a big massive check and they open a bottle of champagne and somebody says, what are you going to do? And they go, house, car, holiday, 
look after our family and friends. I can't believe it. This is the best thing that ever happened to me. And yeah. pop the champagne and everybody goes, well done, right? And then they go on to the next news item. Yeah. I, I read somewhere that if all the people who entered that week's competition, so just that one competition for the lottery on the Saturday, yeah, every single person who entered was given 30 seconds to say, I didn't win. You know, 30 seconds. Oh, yeah, but I bought a, a, I bought a quick dip at the local corner shop. I checked my numbers, but I didn't win. Mm -hmm. Every person who entered got 30 seconds to say that on the news. It would take over 40 years to hear them all. Whoa. From just one draw. Wow. Apparently, wow. yeah. <clears throat> I'd have to fact check that. But, um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so this guy, De Dennis, was quite persistent, and he ended up uh, buying the pub for much more than, than, than it was worth, really. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, that boosted our family's wealth. Mm. So my father went then on to buy a larger hotel, which yeah. had which had a function room, which had a you know restaurant, bars, lots of rooms, all that sort of carry on. So they they moved up a bit. And by now, I was now leaving primary school and to go to secondary school. My brothers and sisters were all older than me, so they'd all already left. So my father had this bright idea that I would go to a boarding school. Because, mm -hmm. you know, him and my mother and father now, you know, they had three children under five before they were 21. Mm. And then sort of 10 years later, they had me. So yeah. Had, yeah. So I think they thought, well, all our kids are growing up in a way except for this one. Yeah. <laughs> Get rid of him. Let's get get let's get him into boarding school. Yeah. <laughs> so they sent me to um, quite a quite a famous boarding school uh, for my final education. And yeah. Um, yeah. So I got sent off to boarding school, which was uh, a bit challenging because having now my 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 older brothers were, and my sister were you know my my sister went on to do big hairdressing. She was working for herself. My other brother went on to to learn all about clocks and watches and mm. to become a self-employed clock repairer. And yeah. uh, my other brother was, was fixing, fitting windows and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, so they were all self-employed. They'd all now at 18, 19, 20 had moved out, had their own place, yeah. Yeah. not working for anyone type thing. So this was the, the, the sort of feeling around the, the family at the time. Mm. So I'm at boarding school and I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, um, I'm just going to be a businessman like my dad. You know, what do yeah. I what do I need all this maths and physics, and, uh, you know, chemistry for? Um, I don't need any of that rubbish. And at the boarding school, you weren't allowed to have um, bicycles. Mm -hmm. and it was a big campus, but everybody had to walk everywhere. And yeah. although it was in a city, um, the, the, it was in a city. No one was allowed bicycles. And I thought, well, this yeah. is... This is really odd because I used to cycle everywhere, you know. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I arranged to get a bicycle and hide it in the the grounds of the school. <laughs> so that, uh, you know, when when you got out, I would cycle off. You see. Okay. Mm. Um, and then I hit upon a plan, which was usually at night, sort of after you'd finished what was called prep, you'd finished schoolwork yeah. and you'd do homework, mm -hmm. and you finish by eight thirty, something like that. What the prefects would do, the older boys, they who were 16, 17, 18, is they would send one of the junior boys with a, a list to go to the local Chinese takeaway. 
ah. and uh, bring the food back. Of course, by the, time, the time they'd walked in, you know, it, it wasn't that far away. It was a mile or something like that. But by the time they'd walked away in, got everything and walked back, the food was a bit cold or not as hot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, if I cycle there and cycle back, I'm going to I'm going to be bringing hot food back. Maybe they'll use my services. Of course, I couldn't tell the pretext I was on a bike. Right? Mm, yeah. Grass me up to the, the headmaster. <laughs> but um, when you went there, for each order that you got, you got like 50p or something. Yeah. You know, so if there were five prefects, well, you know, you'd get five yeah. p's. Uh, you get yourself a couple of, you know, a good, good few quid. And, yeah. um, and I thought, oh, okay, this is, this is good. So I would cycle into the Chinese, get the stuff and cycle back and be back much quicker than anyone else could do it, hide the bike yeah. and yeah. then and dish out the food. Um, and that that went that worked quite well actually. Yeah. Wow. Um, until uh, I was called into the housemaster's office one day, and he said, um, "I I understand that you have a bike, and you uh-huh. know the rules about bikes, you know, so you have to get rid of the bike." So I was like, "Right, okay, okay, yes, yes, okay, I'll get rid of the bike." So I thought, "Oh, that was that," but the 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 customer demand, shall we say, was quite high, you know. Yeah. Saying, Oh come on! Can you not go at the Chinese for us, or can you, you know, can you bring it? And I thought, right, okay, customer demand, you know, yeah, supply, yeah. supply and demand. I'll just yeah. have to keep going, right? But yeah. I'll try and try and take a different route. <laughs> <laughs> so that kept up for another while, and then uh, eventually I got called into the housemaster's office again, and he said, right, I told you to get rid of the bite. You didn't get rid of the bite. Yeah. Reach of discipline, right? Six of the best with a cane. Right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. And get rid of the bike. Okay. Yeah. Bye. That lasted not very long. Again, supply and demand. Customer yeah. demand was there. <laughs> I'll do it again. Anyway, I did it again. And this time, you know, I, I was rumbled again. Yeah. This time I went to the headmaster's office. Wow. The headmaster of the school. I didn't know. Um, I knew him, and and he was a sort of revered figure. But what I, I didn't know then, but I know now, is that he'd been a prisoner in Japanese prisoner of war camps. Oh. Quite, you know, I mean, badly affected by that. He was a raging alcoholic. Everybody knew that, that he was just about drunk all the time when he was giving lessons. I mean, he was, don't get me wrong, he was a good headmaster. Yeah. You wouldn't think, you know. I mean, we knew that he liked, he liked a sherry, as we would say. Yeah. But, but he was probably knocking back half a bottle of whiskey before, before lunch. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, really, he had all these demons. Anyway, I think when I went to him and he gave me a lecture about you know discipline and understanding and how a, how the how the, the the school can't function if everybody breaks the law mm-hmm. and yada yada all that's carry on. And his his study was the sort of wood lined room, you know, with a suit of armor in the corner and gilded pictures, paintings above the crackling fireplace mm-hmm. and uh, a Chesterfield sofa, which is a leather sort of button back sofa mm-hmm. and the big high chair. And then in the corner would be his desk with the, the green banker's lamp on it. You know, you yeah. get an impression. Uh, crackling fire. And, and he had a dog lying in front of the fireplace. Yeah. Whilst he gave me this lecture about how I should be, uh, you know, following the rules and everything. Right, okay, fine. And then he says, right, I'm, and, and I'm going to have to now beat you. Oh. So I had to lean across this Chesterfield sofa 
while he took out this a, a bendy cane, you know, mm-hmm. and basically beat the bejesus out of me. <laughs> yeah, and I remember it was it was bloody sore. But anyway, mm. um, and at the end of it, he gave me a glass of sherry. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, so I go back to the boarding house, and of course, all the guys were there, and they're like, "What happened?" And of course, I had to take my trousers down and let them see the evidence. Yeah, (laughs) this ploughed field across the cheeks of my arse, you know, where this taking place, and they were all like, "Whoa, Mm. hero, you know, legend." (laughs) (laughs) But that was me trying to be entrepreneurial and getting the out of me for it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's 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 that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was my schooling, um, and I, I left school. I actually wanted to be a vet. Mm. I, I in the summer holidays, I'd been shipped over to uh, relatives in Ireland, and one of them lived near a farm. Well, everybody in Ireland lives near a farm, yeah. but this one was quite literally sort of two hundred yards down the road. I mean, it was a it was a you know farmhouse it was quite close with, yeah. with pigs it was really smelly it had lots of pigs in pen yeah. and cows and and a lot of manure around mm-hmm. down there in my wellies and clean up clean all the pigs and feed the pigs and do all this kind of carry on and having gone to uh, a boarding school you know i had a i would say i did get a higher level of education than most of the local kids yeah, the local kids there and my cousins and things like that. They were all like, "Yeah, we're just gonna, we're just gonna, you know, do manual jobs or drive a van or something or whatever it was." Mm-hmm. I was, I was, I remember the vet coming to to fix, you know, whatever was wrong with the pig or something like yeah. that. I would always go with the vet and yeah. say, what's "That for what's that for?" And then he'd tell me about about the drugs he was using, and I'd remember that from my chemistry lessons. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I I remember him sort of. Well, I don't think he was impressed, but I think he was kind of, oh, you know, you've, you've, you've got a bit more intelligence about you than other people. Yeah. He allowed me to carry his bag, and he allowed me to. So the next time he went to, um, you know, a, visit a cow and a calf or fix some farm animal, mm. I would go with him and carry his bag, and I absolutely loved it. And then he told me all about what a vet was and what vets yeah. did, and then he encouraged me to read. Uh, books by uh, a country vet called James Herriot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I read books, James Herriot, and um, the, the, there was a TV series that spun out of it many years later called All Creatures Great and Small. Yeah. About the life of a Yorkshire country vet. Yeah. So I started reading these books and getting right into it. And then, of course, when I went back to school um, and you're getting on to sort of 15, 16, they say, well, what do you want to do with your life? And I went, I want to be a vet, right? Mm-hmm. I want to be a vet. So when you want to be a vet, they'll say, right, okay, um, for the next year, you need to study, you know, biology, chemistry, yeah, chemistry, yeah. Mm-hmm. physics. Um, uh, if you're doing, and the way it worked, if you're doing physics, you've got to do mathematics and this, that, the next thing. Well, I was absolutely rubbish at mathematics, <laughs> physics. Um, great at biology, loved biology. I was top grades at biology, <laughs> top of the class, you know, fantastic results, all the rest of it. But I could not get my head around chemistry. Mm. So that was going to thwart my ambitions to become a, a vet. Yeah. Mm. So when I when the final exams came in, I didn't have a high enough score to go to university. Mm. So um, I thought, well, all right, well, that's the end of that. Then I'll have to rethink things. So um, 
I, I then went home and told my father, I was still living at home then, obviously, and I told him, and I said, I'm not going to go to university. He's like, all right, okay, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I'll figure it out, you know, sort of thing. Hmm. So um, he said, right, okay, you figure it out. And let's see what happens. So I went to um, to see what my options were, and I spoke to the school careers thing, and they said, well, look, what you can do is you can go to college. You can go to college to night school. Mm-hmm. And if you go to night school, you can do chemistry at night school. And if you get the exam, then you should be able to get into, you know, get into university. Yeah. Um, and I also um, applied for for jobs that, that were revolved around, you know, chemistry, vets, yeah. that thing. I tried to become a vet's assistant and I, tried, I applied for another job to work beside a vet or clean the toilets in a vet or anything. Yeah. But I kept getting rejected. But I did apply for a job at the Lothian and Borders Police Forensic Laboratory. Mm-hmm. Forensic scientist. Yeah. And and I got it. I mean, I was, you know, sort of, I was a, like a junior lab assistant. I wasn't even that. I think I was a junior admin assistant. I didn't get yeah. in the lab. Uh, was administrative, administrative <laughs> assistant. Mm. So I ended up doing that during the day and then trying to do the, the chemistry thing at night. But I, again, I, I didn't, I didn't pass it. I flunked it. Uh, and so my, you know, my dad said to me now, so now what are you going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. Um, and he said, right, well, okay, if you're going to stay here, you need to give your mother money every week. You can't stay here. Oh. For, you have to give her, uh, you know, 50 quid a week or something. And I thought, right, okay. <clears throat> I then met a friend of mine, and he had, had been given the same the same uh, ultimatum by his yeah. <laughs> get, get put money on the table each week or you don't eat here. You know, you're a man now, you know, yeah. <laughs> you're 18, you're a man. You've got to start contributing or you can, yeah. hook, you know, you can get out and find <laughs> your own way. I mean, there was no mercy. It wasn't like, you know, mm. like now it yeah. was, you pay your way or you get out. You get out. Wow. And of course the jobs market then was horrendous. I mean, it was not good sort of eighties. It was, it was, you know, it was mass unemployment and all this sort of carry on. So getting a job was just horrendous. It was just getting rejections everywhere, no matter what you went for, you know, clean toilets. We have enough toilet cleaners, you know, Yeah. Um, I'll I'll do this. I'll be a gardener. No, with no vacancies. I'll do anything. No, nothing. So, so the deadline was looming that if I couldn't plonk money on the table, I was going to get out. Get out. I I didn't understand or realize there was any concept of welfare or anything like that because in our family it was you work. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I was in the in the pub as you are with my mate discussing uh, this whole uh, situation, yeah. and, and a man came up and he said, um, he "said you look like a couple of strapping young lads. You should join the army." Wow. And, I, and, I, and we sort of looked. So I went the army. What do you want to join the army for? Now. My mate was a bit more uh, reluctant than I was because when, having been at a boarding school, we did a thing called CCF, Combined Cadet Force, yeah. where you, you get to pretend you're in the Army yeah. every Wednesday afternoon. You can either join the Army, the Navy, or the Air Force, or mm. you go and, you, you know, you don't play sports. You, you do one of those things. Mm-hmm. So I joined the Combined Cadet Force, the, the military bit, the Army bit. And, uh, and yeah, so I had a taster for it. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I thought it was quite good. <laughs> so my laptop wasn't connected to the battery. Are you running oh, out of juice? Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
So, um, yeah, so I thought that. But I, I remember, um, mm. I, I don't know if you know or, or remember a comedian called Billy Connolly, Scottish yeah, comedian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I remember him very well. Yeah. Billy Connolly, um, I remember he did uh, a song, uh, and it was about the army. And yeah. it said, uh, the title of the song, I think, is I'm Asking You, Sergeant, Where's Mine? Uh-huh. It's the story of a soldier lying in a hospital bed, okay? yeah. lying in a hospital bed. And I, I think the words were, he said, um, uh, you know, about the, how the recruiting sergeant got him to join the army. But here mm-hmm. he was, he'd been shot or blown up or something, and he was lying in a hospital bed, badly injured. And he was yeah. thinking about how he got in the army. And he remembered the cr- recruiting sergeant saying, uh, all your talk of computers and sunshine and skis. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm asking you, Sergeant, where's mine, right? I mean, I'm lying in a bed here, blowing up. I never saw computers, sunshine and skis. Uh, you know, where's, I'm asking you, Sergeant, where's mine? So it was a great song. Anyway, so I remember that. The recruiting sergeant was very much, you know, oh, you join the army, you'll see the world. You know, it was, yeah. you, you will, the, you know, computers. You'll learn how to use computers. And, yeah. and, you know, sunshine when you go to all these different places and cultures and skiing and swimming. Yeah. I showed you all the pictures of loads of, guys your age having fun and, and being uh-huh. all, you know being all muscular and everything and strapping and you know all of that stuff that's how they get you into the army you know yeah <laughs> the reality is completely different. <laughs> the reality is completely different yeah so uh yeah so <laughs> so i don't quite have um pictures of me doing uh my recruiting i'll need to find the pictures of me uh, recruiting but there yeah. I think there is a picture of me. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a brilliant picture, actually. Many years ago, aged 18, windswept and interesting. Yeah. Uh, young, whole life ahead of him, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, there, there's another picture of me on the rifle ranges. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Brilliant. Well, and where, where was that? Where was the training? Was that in Scotland itself? So the training, no, the training, first basic training was in... Uh, in England, in Grantham, hmm. um, I went to. Uh, for some reason, when you join, they 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 say, "Do you want to be?" You know, they, they give you the choice. Do you want to be an engineer? Do you want to be an infantryman? Or hmm. do you want to be? You know, they've got all these different parts. Yeah. The yeah. Hmm. And one of the options was the Royal Corps of Transport. Now, the, the attraction to the Royal Corps of Transport was that they teach you get you get your driving license. Ah. You get your driving license, and they'll teach you how to ride a motorbike, which I had anyway. So you get your motorbike yeah. license, your driving license, heavy goods license. Yeah, you, you will quite literally. In fact, I think I've still, I found it the other day. You'll be able to get your heavy goods vehicle. Uh, uh, wow! From the army. Hmm. From the army. So there we go. There's my heavy goods vehicles driving yeah. license. Wow. That's, that's wow. So I learned uh, I learned all of that um, mm. in the Army, which is great. Uh, I absolutely loved it, enjoyed yeah. it. It was fantastic. Mm. Uh, and I was so good at it, I got picked to go to Royal Military College Sandhurst. So there was oh. wow. um, in, yeah. in my room at Sandhurst. Yeah. Um, now having... <laughs> You know, being elevated to a completely different level now. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you you you're there. You're sort of nineteen twenty, and to get up in the morning, someone knocks on your door yeah. and, and brings in a cup of tea. 
because you're now an officer training. <laughs> and they put yeah. shoes for you and all that sort of carry on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so I did all of that uh, for a few years and um, went to Germany. And in again, in, in the difference between um, Britain and Germany in those days was, you know, culturally completely different. Yeah. Um, a lot of the soldiers who came back from Germany mm-hmm. uh, were complaining about the back to the UK from Germany. Yeah. Complaining about the beer. You know, the beer here is not as good as it is in Germany. It's really yeah. Yeah. I wish somebody would bring in proper beer. Yeah. And, and I thought to myself, aye, aye, there's an opportunity here. So I asked, so in the army, you have what's called junior ranks club. Then you've got a sergeant's mess and then you've got the officer's mess. Yeah. And the junior ranks club is, is all the soldiers and they all drink beer, right? They do. They just all drink beer. Yeah. And later on, they'll have dark rum, whiskey, vodka, all that kind of thing. The sergeant's mess, slightly more, you know, slightly better. They will have a, a mixture of things, but they'll also have wine. And yeah. then in the officer's mess, it will generally be gin and tonics and wine. That's That was kind of the – that was the, the, the way it was divided up. So uh, I went round a number of junior ranks clubs and said, if I can bring over some beer from Germany, how many would you want? And they said, oh, we'll take 50 cases or yeah. – 40 cases or 100 cases or whatever. So by the time I added it all up, it was, you know, as you can imagine, it was quite a substantial order for, yeah, yeah. for most of Scotland, right? Uh, and then I started thinking I could sell it to England, army branches in England as well. Mm. You know, Okay, let me see about this. Yeah. So I had this, effectively I had this order for um, what worked out to be two 40-foot containers of beer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I thought, right, okay, spoke to the junior rights, spoke to the sergeant's mess, and I said to them, well, I can supply the beer. And uh, under military rules, they had to pay for it when it was delivered. Right? Mm. All right. So I thought, well, I'm going to get this beer. I'll get the money for it. And when I spoke to the suppliers in Germany, they, they had given me 60 days credit. So mm. 60 days to pay for the beer. So I would be able to collect all the money. The money, yeah. 60 days before I'd have to pay the the, you know, the supplier. So I placed an order then for, I can't remember what the number was, but it was something like 10,000 cases of, of yeah. German beer, okay, yeah. called Furstenberg. And uh, because I'd placed such a large order, they threw in a whole load of freebies. Ah. Beer, um, glasses with the logo on, beer mats, yeah. beer towels, um, bottle openers, you know, you, you you imagine all the stuff that comes with it. So there was yeah. about containers worth of stuff that came with <laughs> it. Uh, all the stuff that I was getting for free. Yeah. Um, they also did things like if you, you know, when you ordered so many cases, you got, so if you order 100 cases, you got 10 cases free. You know, this, yeah. So I didn't know any of this. I just, <laughs> just placed an order for some beer and you, you yeah. just, Deliver. I mean, I was in the Royal Corps of Transport, so delivery wasn't an issue. An issue, yeah. <laughs> you would just deliver all this beer and um, and then collect the money same day, put the money into the bank, mm. and then pay the supplier. Yeah. So I didn't have a business bank account. I didn't have a business name. I had nothing. I only had my own bank account. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't think about any of the implications of, the, of any of this. I mean, I'd placed the order. They'd accepted the order. Yeah. Uh, came from me. I was an army officer. It was Germany. Germany knew how the thing worked. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, they knew they weren't going to be paid by the Ministry of Defence. It was me that was placing it. Yeah. And this was a chance for them to get their their product yeah. in, into a new market. Yeah. So mm. I thought, you know, it was it was win all round. So that was it. I was now, well, okay, I'm now in the beer importing business. Yeah. <laughs> How hard can it be? Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the order duly arrived, and I went down with um, a truck to collect it. Not me driving the truck. A couple of guys, were. we, we had a couple of trucks yeah. uh, to take away this, not the 40-foot container, but to take away a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, because it would stay in um, a bonded warehouse mm-hmm. until you paid for it. Well, I know that now, but I didn't know that then. Yeah. <laughs> so I went down, tr- t- turned up at the bonded warehouse and said, hi, my name is, I'm here to collect my beer. See? Mm-hmm. And with the clipboard and the fluorescent jacket, I don't think he had a fluorescent jacket, but you can imagine, the man with the clipboard. Yeah. Well, um, yep, okay, here you go. And he handed me this bit of paper, which was for duty and VAT. Yeah. I had to pay up front. Uh-huh. Well, I didn't know this, you see. Yeah. Well, I said, I've got a, what, what? No, but that's my beer there. I've got 60 days credit with a supplier. You don't understand, right? Mm-hmm. I can get the money today. If you let me take it, I can take it and I get the money today. And he's like, son, this isn't how it works. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. So suddenly there was this massive hole in the finances because I thought, yeah. I think they wanted something like £8,000. Wow. <laughs> which was the equivalent, it's the equivalent now of about 30000 I think. 30, yeah. Anyway, yeah. they wanted that. Of course, I didn't have it. Nothing like it. Yeah. You know, I had a, I can't remember what I had in my account. I had a couple of thousand, but not, not huge amounts. Um, so I didn't have it. So I had to go to my bank. And my mm. bank uh, in Edinburgh was um, uh, the Clydesdale Bank. Yeah. Hill, a corner mm. branch. The manager there was Mr. Norman Wilson. Mm. He, he, he knew my father. You know, I had an account there since I was five years old, saving up, you know, yeah. my job money and that sort of thing. So he, he'd seen some activity, put it that yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> when I went to see him and I said um, – told him what the story was, he, he sort of looked at me, and I remember he looked over his glasses like that. <laughs> so you're telling me you need £8,000? Yeah, for yeah. beer. I said, yes. Uh, have you got a business name? Or a business? Who, have you, who have you got your business account with? I said, I don't have a business account. Yeah. You don't have a business account. <laughs> you have to open a business account here for you. I said, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I need to get this beer. I need... He said, where's this £8,000 coming from? And I said, well, you're a bank. Lend it to me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's not quite how it works. But he said, right, okay, right. And and where is this stuff? I said, it's sitting in the bonded warehouse in Leith right now, and there's a lorry down there waiting to take yeah. it away. Okay. He's like, well, you want to take it today? You want £8,000 today? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so he said, right, okay. Um, and he shouted through to one of the women in the next room, you know, like, yeah. Jeanette, right, open an account for Mr. McLennan. He's like, what do, you yeah. want call, what do you want to call your business? And I went, I don't know. <laughs> I called it I called it R&M Contracts or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I should have thought of beer distribution or something. I don't know. But I just, I just went, look, open an account. My initials. Mm-hmm. So, um, my, so I used my initials, opened an account, mm-hmm. um, brought out the woman brought out a little checkbook which had six checks in it yeah handwritten at the bottom of the checkbook the sorting code of the bank yeah and the account number 
handwritten. <laughs> but he said to me, he said, look, he says, you can't, you can't give uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, you can't give them a check. You have to give them a, a banker's draft. Mm -hmm. Well, what's that? And he said, right, okay, what's well, so it's it's basically a money order that guarantees the money. Yeah. So he says, we'll open an account for you. He says, we'll give you an overdraft facility for, mm -hmm. for £8,000, and I'll give you a banker's draft. And he said, now, I need you to sign this letter. So he, he the manager, sat down at an old typewriter, and he yeah. typed up, right? Yeah. <laughs> an irrevocable mandate. And mm -hmm. it, it had my name on it. And I said, I hereby irrevocably guarantee to repay the bank the sum of £8,000, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had to sign it with a pen, but I had to write the words adopted as holograph and then sign my name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This was under the Requirements of Writing Act. Yeah. <laughs> 1995 or something. It was repealed. Okay. Uh, but I had to write this out, this adopted as holograph. So he, he now had his guarantee, if you like. Yeah. He had he handed me the banker's draft, and I went off to get the beer. Wow. So I arrived a couple of hours later to, to the drivers who were a bit a bit annoyed at the time, and, yeah. and I handed this bank draft over to the customs guy, and he went, now you can take your beer away, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I just went, we drove around, dropping off this beer, collecting the money, yeah. and went back to the bank, mm -hmm. and I think about three or four days later, I now had... 8,000 surplus in the bank, having paid back the 8,000. Yeah. I had the surplus and I had enough money to pay the German the supplier German. for the beer. Yeah. Uh, and that was it. I was in the, the beer importing business. Wow. <laughs> it's brilliant. So, <clears throat> so that led to, um, well, the officers didn't want beer, they wanted wine. Yeah. So they had been buying buying their wine from some local supplier, and I I thought, well, I'll I'll see if I can do any better. Because bear yeah. in mind, I, I had no big organization. I didn't have offices. I didn't yeah. have staff. I had nothing like that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, to place an order in those days, what all you needed was access to a telex machine. Yeah, um, right? a telex machine, which is like a sort of business fax before yeah. fax machines really took off. Yeah. Um, so you could you could. I mean, even phoning up and speaking to a company in Germany in those days was was kind of a, a real nuisance, you know. It, mm -hmm. I mean, it obviously could be done, but it wasn't as simple as it is now. Yeah, yeah. And everything, everything was done in writing, and it had to be by telex. Mm. You had to have a telex number, and then you had to send the order through. Yeah. So my, my sister by now was married to a guy who worked in a shipping company, mm -hmm. worked for a shipping agency. yeah. He had access to a to a telex machine. Telex. Yeah. Let me use the telex machine to place the orders. Yeah, and of course, it made me look like I had an office and everything as well. You know, when the telex yeah. was going, um, and when I was on the phone, you could hear people in the background and all this kind. Of, and so, I think yeah. they had the impression that I had an organisation. Yeah, it didn't. It was just me. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I found a, a, a wine supplier. Again, German wine. They love they love the German wine. I got to know German wines. Yeah. Well, I did some. I went to visit some German, um, you know, wineries where they make the wine and vineyards and that sort of thing, which was all great. Yeah. And uh, started to supply, um, you know, officers with with wine, mm -hmm. and it, it, but it wasn't as good as the beer. I mean, the beer was bigger orders, much yeah. more profit. The wine there wasn't as much profit in it. Yeah, um, you know, uh, an officer's mess might take 
two cases or three cases of beer. I mean, they weren't raging alcoholics or anything. They weren't yeah. drinking. When there was a, a dinner on, if there was a big event, then yeah. that, that would be good. But it mostly consisted of an officer saying to me, I'd, I'd like a case of beer, a case of wine for myself, please. Mm. Like, right, okay. Now, and I, 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 this stuff wasn't stored anywhere. When it got to the bonded warehouse, I would take it out of the warehouse and then take it to wherever it was going. But you had to pay for it while it was in the warehouse. So the longer it stayed there, the more money it cost you. Yeah. yeah. So I started then thinking, well, I need to get somewhere to keep this. I need some storage. Some just I started to think differently about storage distribution, that sort of thing. And mm. then um, a, a, a guy asked me if I would supply his restaurant. Just mm. I got to know. So I started supplying restaurants. Yeah. And that one thing led to another. So then I ended up with a, a, a an actual physical location and and then started selling beer and wine retail as well as wholesale. You get more money for it. I took on an employee and the employee, uh, and her name was Frances. Mm -hmm. uh, Frances was uh, brilliant. She was uh, very very loud, very outgoing, very gregarious, wonderful woman. She's still around. I mean, I'll tell her about this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she now works uh, in Edinburgh for a company that does service to accommodation. So yeah. I met her again recently. You know, she, she was my first employee, as it were. Yeah. And, um, and one thing that Frances uh, had was a real ability to sell. To she, sell. Had, she had the gift of the gab. She was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> And she came to me and she said, to, one day I remember she said to me, she said, how, um, how much would 100 cases of champagne cost? Mm. And I said, you've sold 100 cases of champagne? She said, yeah. Wow. I said, yeah. I said well, what price did you quote them? She said, oh, they, they told me what they were paying. And I just kind of undercut it by a bit. Yeah. And I mm. said, well, let's, let's go. Let's go and find out, right? Mm -hmm. So it turns out that, it was a wonderful deal. I mean, yeah. a brilliant, brilliant deal. Mm. But what uh, Francis got this regular order for champagne, and I said, "How you know who's buying this champagne?" <laughs> Francis knew just about everyone in the gay community, ah. and they all loved champagne. Champagne, yeah. And they loved Francis, and they loved our champagne because you couldn't get it anywhere else because. We went to a supplier who didn't have a big enough distribution to justify, you know, putting it anywhere else. Mm. So uh, we got it, you know, at a very, very good price. It was a, a champagne you could not buy in any of, you know, if you went into any of the wine shops or supermarkets, yeah. you never saw this champagne. So mm. nobody could, you know, they, they couldn't say, well, it's that's the price of the champagne because I've seen it somewhere else. Yeah. Mm. They just couldn't say that. You know, Moet de Chandon seems to be everywhere, you know? Yeah. Who knows the price of a bottle of Moet? Yeah. You know, in a supermarket or in a restaurant, everyone knows the price. The price, yeah. But this champagne, nobody knew the price of. So, of course, we were getting fabulous markups on it. Mm. And, and that, that, was, that, was, that was the wine business. Yeah. <laughs> and we also supplied some restaurants as well. So yeah. um, that, 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 that then led to me getting in the restaurant business. Yeah. Um, and because one of the restaurants owed me a bit of money, couldn't pay me, and he said, look, I can give you the keys to one of the restaurants if you like. Mm. So I thought, well, how hard can it be to run a restaurant? Yeah, and I, I was now in the restaurant business. Uh, that, that led to um, another restaurant, Yeah, second one. And then I was a bit 
sort of running around like a headless chicken because now it was kind of, you know, running a restaurant is a much harder work than having beer or wine distribution. Beer or wine distribution is quite easy. It's very, it's quite Monday to Friday, nine to five. Mm. But as a restaurant, it's not, it absolutely is not. It's yeah. virtually, uh, you know, virtually 18 hours a day. Mm. So that was quite tough. And um, I, I then was trying to do everything and running around like a headless chicken and was completely unaware of anything like proper, even despite being in the army, I didn't really have proper systems and processes in place. Although I did. I mean, I'd left the army by this time, but um, you can't run a business like you run a military unit. It doesn't work that way because there's not the same structure and hierarchy. It requires a completely different approach.